everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Today's topic is the practical use of bioelectronic medicine. You've probably never even heard of that before. You know, for my loyal listeners, you may remember almost four years ago when I started the podcast, one of my first guests was a very special one to me. It was Dr. Kevin Tracy. I called him the father of bioelectronic medicine, a field that was in its infancy, uh, but hopefully held great promise for the future. You know, Dr. Tracy was a world-renowned neurosurgeon researcher, and his work was fascinating, showing how affecting the vagus nerve could treat severe autoimmune conditions. Um, well, in today's podcast, the future is now. My personal opinion about in medicine is that we're going through this natural evolution. It started, of course, like with anatomy, you know, which led the way to surgery, and then came clues from chemistry, which led to pharmacology treatments. And more recently, our understanding of the immune system has led to all these new treatments with monoclonal antibodies for cancer and autoimmune disease. But now I believe the next frontier is coming from physics and the age of bioelectronic medicine. My guest today, Dr. Peter Statz, is a well-known specialist also at the forefront of this field in pain medicine and bioelectronic medicine. He was the founder and chief of the pain medicine section at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. He's currently in practice in New Jersey, and he's also co-founder of the company ElectroCore, the company that makes the device we're going to be talking about today called GammaCore. I'm really excited and welcome Dr. Peter Statz to the podcast. Dean, well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you and your guests. I know your, your audience. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. This is going to be really interesting. Okay, so what I usually like to start out with, because I it's my own personal fascination on people's um, background in the, and also their interest in the field. So I believe you're an anesthesiologist by training. Is that correct? Uh, I am. I am an anesthesiologist. Okay. So how did you, I, you know, get... How did you choose that field and how did you then, you know, I guess, um, get involved with pain medicine? Was there any personal reason or is there just an interest, you know, for you to help patients? Well, look, I think I've been interested in pushing the forefront my whole life. Um, I, my dad was a very well-known psychologist, uh, came up with uh, some original thoughts that some of your listeners may have heard of, such as time out. For child development. Yeah, and, sure, I've heard that. I've used that multiple <laughs> times when my kids were little. Now I think they'd laugh at me in their thirties yeah. if I tried it. But yes, that's that's interesting. Okay, he, he was really a, a maverick um, and came up with ideas that were counter to the uh, approaches of his day. You know, back uh-huh. then, everybody used a belt if your kid was bad, and he yeah said, yeah you need to train by love, not by threats. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he instilled in me an interest in doing things differently. Mm-hmm. And when I went to Hopkins, I went there to become an intensivist, but rapidly became interested in the field of pain. Um, and I had a great set of chairmen there who were very supportive of me and uh, allowed me to build out a division of pain medicine in the Department of Anesthesia. I became the first anesthesiologist to have surgical privileges to implant devices like what Kevin Tracy had worked on Mm. uh, at any academic institution and started to work on training fellows and learning about neuromodulation. Uh, I was president of what's called North American Neuromodulation Society, really a um, precursor to the field of bioelectronic medicine. Uh, And my view at that time was let's try to understand 
get a platform together for all of those who are interested in the field of how electricity can modify disease. Being a pain doctor, uh, that's where I got started, but then rapidly moved into spasticity disorders, uh, um, implanted devices to control spasticity, and then started working uh, relative to this conversation, um, realized that my son had peanut allergies and thought there must be a way to modulate the nervous system so people's lungs don't shut down. And I embarked on a pathway of trying to figure that out that led me to the vagus nerve, to stimulating the vagus nerve, to doing what I think is really important is doing it without surgery. Um, yes. And- I mean, that was one of the things you're, you're leading me all into all the places I want to ask you about because, sure. yeah, I mean, Kevin Tracy's work obviously was fascinating, but it did involve implantation in the body. And I know in that Scientific American article, which I had from years before when I contacted him about, um, they, you know, mentioned, you know, the companies would be working on this. So again, when somebody actually, I was really fortunate, a, a mentor of mine happened to mention GammaCore and I looked it up, I'm like, oh my God, this thing is available now, you know? Yeah. And, and again, unfortunately, like a lot of new things in medicine, like I know in my field, cause you're talking about peanut allergy, I'm doing a lot of innovative things with sublingual drops for that to help kids and adults that have these severe food allergies. But it's like, why aren't people talking about this? And uh, why do not more physicians know about it? So, yeah, so you lead me into, so yeah, so you kind of were going through this, um, I guess they'll say the rabbit hole, you know, going to, in different areas within a pain medicine. And was was were you familiar with Kevin Tracy's work? Like how, what made you focus on the vagal nerve stimulation as the, as the you know, because the vagus nerve is obviously a very unique nerve in the body. I mean, obviously when people have pain, it could be blockages from anywhere in the spinal cord, but the vagus nerve, as you know, is a cranial nerve that as, and as the name in Latin says, it's the wandering nerve. It goes all over the body into organs. So what, again, if you want to tell me more in depth, what led you to say, huh, this looks like the path that might be interesting? Well, no, it's a really good question. And I didn't really recognize it at first. Um, I started looking at this back in about 2000, back in late 1990s, even, um, looking for solutions to airway reactivity. And I started with drugs like everybody else was looking at, um, started then thinking about spinal cord stimulation and the extent of my knowledge about the vagus nerve having been an anesthesia resident was don't hit it when I'm placing a central line uh, because uh, one would be concerned that you might slow the heart or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I met up with some other really smart people uh, who were also very interested in the vagus nerve and what its potential was. Um, We started working again in airway reactivity um, back in 2004, and and I honestly am embarrassed to say I didn't know about Kevin Tracy's work, uh, which has been phenomenal, by the way. Let me just you know you know put an exclamation point to what you said. I think uh, his work is transformative and really challenges the status quo and helps our understanding greatly about the human body to understand that the command and control center for inflammation in your body is a nervous system. It's the right. big That's nerve. that, you know, that back in the day, I was actually watching, um, believe it or not, it was, you know, cause I do also a lot of functional medicine, but many, many years ago, Bill Moyers did a, a, a whole, um, series program called healing in the mind. 
mm-hmm. or healing the body, one of those two. But one of the things, um, one of the uh, episodes that he did, it was really fascinating. It was, it was from the group in Rochester, New York. And what, you know, they were showing how, this, this was kind of really fascinating, that they were, first they did it with animals, then they did it in, actually in humans, where they, I think they were on some kind of immune suppressant drug. And they found that on alternate days, if they substituted um, like a sweet tasting um, placebo, essentially, but, you know, whatever, it, they continue to have the benefit of the immune suppression, showing some kind of connection between the immune, you know, obviously the mind, the brain. And then there was one of the researchers there. Oh, I'll never forget this because to me, it's, it's very important in my field in immunology, because we always thought of the, of the immune system and the neurology, nervous system as separate tracks. And he found, he was looking at a slide of the spleen. And one day, I guess it was under a special stain. He said, oh my God, there were nerve fibers in there, right? That was like, I think his name was Felder, Dr. Felder, but, or Felden. But it was like, that was like the aha moment. Yes, the nervous system and the immune system speak to each other. Like yeah, you were saying, you know. You know, you know one of the, you know, uh, things that I found really interesting in recent past, and you mentioned you're in, interested in functional medicine, um, I grew up in Hawaii where there was a mm. strong Asian influence um, and mind-body medicine has been a, a thought for a long time. But when you stop and you say, okay, we're going to apply scientific principles to mind-body medicine, you have to ask the question, how? Mm. How does this happen? How is the mind interfacing with the body? And in the functional medicine world, we look at what are the functional causes of things and how can we intervene? And it turns out that we've got this Venn diagram coming together of mind, body, functional medicine, and where that links up is the vagus nerve. When you take a look at supplements, if you cut the vagus nerve, they stop working. Um, When you take a look at, um, you just mentioned the immunologic reaction, the mind has a tremendous control over the body and vice versa. The body controls Mm. the mind. We've been talking about you know, everything from fecal transplants to treat multiple sclerosis. How does that happen? It's all the vagus. The, it's Wow. The so that's vagus. really, it really is a key. It's such a key. And it was, it, was, it was kind of like one of those things too, like sort of literally under our noses all these years. You know, it's funny too. I'm sure you remember, and I vaguely remember from medical school, like they... <laughs> Before they had all these potent acid blocking drugs, I mean, what was it? It was the vagotomy, right? That was the the right. surgery for peptic ulcer disease. Yeah, right. And, and probably dangerous. Uh, yes, probably dangerous right. To be, yeah. to be doing that, and I think we've learned, you know, a lesson. Uh, but it's interesting. We keep learning these lessons. I was um, during COVID. A uh, very smart uh, doctor called me and said. I you know, knew I was interested in the vagus. He said, I want to cut the vagus nerve in these patients with severe COVID. And I said, do not do that. Really going back to work that we did with uh, COVID, showing that we could block the cytokine reaction of COVID. And Kevin Tracy's work showing that if you cut the vagus nerve, you have an increased response of TNF-alpha in response to inflammatory mediators. So what you want to do is just the opposite. Don't cut it stimulate it. Wow. Had we been doing that 30 years ago, instead of the vagotomies, I think we would have uh, been helping many, many more people. So that's the key thing. I was just about to ask you that, because as we get into the gamma core device and some of its applications, which I think is really important. So the key thing is the takeaway from Dr. Tracy's work and what you're saying is, right, is don't 
inhibit or cut the vagus nerve, stimulate it enough so that it's doing what? So that that's exactly right. So the vagus nerve uh, has, uh, you, you mentioned it earlier, is the wandering nerve. It touches about every organ system, including the brain. And the vagus nerve is also the rest and relaxation nerve, another way that we think about this. And when we break back the autonomic nervous system, it's the sympathetic and the parasympathetic, sympathetic being fight or flight, right. sympathetic being rest and relaxation. Mm-hmm. We need to optimize our rest and relaxation in many, many ways. And that helps many organ systems and many different diseases. I just finished writing a piece on chronic inflammation. Chronic inflammation is extraordinarily important in many diseases, from cancer to pulmonary disease to Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. And while I'm not suggesting use vagus nerve stimulation to treat everything, what I am suggesting is there's a pathway there that we should be thinking about in our health and wellness, which is minimize inflammation and and maximize our time in rest and relaxation. And you're going to help your overall health and wellness state, and you're going to minimize your development of diseases over time. That's a great point. I want to ask you about something that I want to understand a little bit better too. Uh, you know, again, most people, when they go to their internist, whatever, they want to know what their blood pressure is, their cholesterol, their blood sugar, important stuff. Mm-hmm. But now we're hearing about vagal tone. And mm-hmm. a lot of articles that I've read saying, you know, when you have good vagal tone, you're going to be healthier, there's less inflammation. Can you explain that a little bit to me and what that might mean? Sure. So you, so your audience has probably uh, heard about you know high blood pressure and low blood pressure and your heart rate. Uh, mm-hmm. There are a variety of measures to measure vagal tone. And one aspect is called heart rate variability. And that is the interbeat to beat changes that occur. You want to have a high heart rate variability. You want it to fluctuate around. When you have too much sympathetic drive, it narrows it down and it keeps it very discreet. That's a measurement that we use, um, not so sophisticated, but you know that there's a billion dollar enterprise on measurement. So I can't say at all, but people are using it with Whoops and Fitbits and Apple Watches to measure heart rate variability. Mm-hmm giving the, the the clue that if you have a very low heart rate variability or low vagal tone, there may be a functional disorder that you can optimize with vagus activation. And I, and again, I, look, you, you asked me about gamma core, but there are a lot of ways that people can activate. Yeah, so I, I know. It's interesting. There's probably a lot of even natural ways. I just have a question again, too, which just it kind of throws me a little bit. Like, you know, when as a, you know, in my background in internal medicine, like when we would do a cardiogram and we would look at, you know, the quote QRS complex for the listeners, you know, that's like your heartbeat. You know, you, and people have all seen that on the TV screen, you know, when they're watching you know, any of their favorite television shows. But that typically stays the same unless you have an arrhythmia. So again, can you explain to me what you mean by, when you say the heart rate variability, meaning like if you exercise a lot, you, you, you drive your heart rate up and then it comes back down again and that's a big drop. Because you know, typically if I took an EKG of myself or you, or again, one of my patients, and they obviously didn't have a heart abnormality, I would look at their EKG and I would say, oh, their heart rate is 75 because their QRS complex would be you know, steady. You know, it's really it's really more recent that we've actually been really looking at that same EKG that we've been uh-huh. looking at for a long time. Okay. It, 
what I'm referring to is if you take a look at your at your EKG, put on your EKG right now and take a deep breath and then get and get your EKG while you're taking deep breath and while you're expiring, it's actually a little bit different. Your heart rate's not 60, it's, you know, 62. It's, <laughs> it's a little up, it's a little bit down. Interesting, and it right. Beat to beat, second to second. And having a little bit of that variability is a indication of good vagal health. That's it's fascinating. one little aspect that, that, frankly, when you go to your cardiologist, they're probably not even telling you what your heart rate variability is. But if you go, and I don't own WHOOP or any of those, but if you get a WHOOP, that's what they spend their whole business model on is taking a look at your heart rate variability as a predictor of disease, in fact. And that's fascinating. So how do, um, just before we get into the, the medical device part, how would somebody uh, improve that naturally, you know, the exercise or any kind of deep breathing exercises? What, what would you suggest? Well, look, I would suggest a variety of things. One is just the same thing your mother would have told you when you were seven years old. Eat your fruits and vegetables. Don't eat too much processed food. Uh, Robert, that so, di- so diet, diet affects the heart rate. Yeah, wow. it, it will modulate inflammation, which then oh, okay. has an impact on your heart rate. Okay, makes sense. Um, alcohol is a, is a bad predictor of bad heart rate variability. Exercise, uh, stress, that's mm. another big, 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 big one. Uh, adequate sleep. These are things that you know you kind of know about. Right, right. Potpourri of different um therapies that people tell you to do but i'm telling you why Mm. this is a common pathway to good health is by the vagal activation and vagal control of modulation of inflammation is all part in this this scientific foundation of why mom told you eat your vegetables Wow, that's fascinating. I mean, that's really, really interesting. So, uh, but again, just to go back to, again, sometimes people like to do certain things like yoga or deep breathing exercise. Do you find that is also potentially beneficial? I, I found so many people with stress, if they would just do, I, I've done some training with John Kabat-Zinn, you know, at, on mindfulness and breathing, you know, and Dean Ornish, you know, people that I, early in my career, I, I found fascinating because they were dealing with, you know, John Kabat-Zinn was at UMass, you know, working in what was called the Stress and Pain Reduction Clinic, where he had really you know, difficult cases that were referred to him by physicians. He was a PhD, but he was using mindfulness breathing to help just at least lower the threshold of pain that a lot of these patients were in in their daily life. Uh, And uh, again, I try to use it with my patients because again, I find it helps, you know, again, with practice, not, you know, as an acute thing to help bring down people's level of anxiety, which again, of course, contributes to their pain and I think spasticity, you know. And, and vagal tone, et cetera. So vagal I, tone, I, yeah. That's exactly correct. And um, we would, rec- I do recommend people do stress and vagal activation uh, therapies routinely, whether it be yeah. the deep breathing, um, uh, meditation, all of the have a similar common pathway. So back to our earlier conversation about being interested in mind-body medicine early on, they didn't describe it in the terms of stimulating the vagus nerve versus activation of your sympathetics, but it turns out that may be where a lot of the health benefits and, and everything is disparate as acupuncture. There's an acupuncture approach that places a needle on what's called the auricular branch of the vagus right. nerve in the ear. Mm. And that has been around for 2,000 years. Wow. There's probably 
there's probably a rationale of why that works. And it is probably linking these different concepts back to the Vegas. Yeah. I think that goes back to that whole idea. I mean, not to get to, you know, um, what is it? What is the, I've got the term when they use when, you know, you know, it's too fuzzy wuzzy, but you know, again, there's just something about this whole field of energy medicine. I mean, a lot of patients I know go to energy healers. I've gone to some myself, some much better than others. I, I just, there's something to it. It's just, again, as we're trying to catch up in medicine to explain it, you know, and the kind of work that you're doing is obviously really helping, I think, um, everyday physicians, you know, not, you know, really discard it, you know, when patients are desperate for help in any which way to get relief. Well, well, I have mixed feelings about what you just said. And and let me Okay, sure. Um, First of all, I would say that electrical medicine is probably the most effective therapy we have across many domains. Let's go down the list here. What are the most effective thing you can do for bradycardia? You try a medicine, it doesn't really work. What do you, you put in a pacemaker and you right. stimulate the heart. Right. You have severe, severe back pain that's re- resistant to surgery and medications. What do you do? You put in a spinal cord stimulator. And with today's technology, we're about 90% successful in knocking out at least half of their patient's uh, pain, wow. at least. Um, we go down the list of spasticity disorders. What do you do when you fail all kinds of um, um, medicines? Well, they'll place a deep brain stimulator and stimulate an electrical part of the brain. So, uh, and then, you know, Kevin Tracy's work on inflammation, I think, was transformative. Uh, Before Kevin, there was work going on on vagus nerve stimulation with an implant for epilepsy. I go down the list, and when I get to all of these different disorders that have been studied, electrical medicine comes to the top in among the most effective therapies we have. Wow. And probably with the least side effects too, actually. The least side effects. That's exactly right. Right. But the 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 mixed feelings I have is people have um um pirated that term and they use it for less than um uh well studied approaches. And they I say go to go to electrical medicine. And sometimes it's as quirky as um you know, I can raise my hand over your body and I can yeah. cure your cancer. And right. and that does a real disservice to no, the No, I, I, I agree with you. I didn't I hopefully I didn't put you know par, you know portray that to the to the listeners. Yeah. It's yeah. just it's very interesting. I mean, again, um, you know, sometimes it's interesting, even like with osteopaths or certain people who are really talented. I that's the only way I could put it, that um you know, how they have a good feel for the body. All right, let's go on to the gamma cord device. I want, you know, the if people on YouTube are watching can see this. It's kind of fascinating. It looks like my Braun electric razor, <laughs> you know. Um, and I just got this actually this last week. They were, the company was kind enough to send me a, a demo model because I'm really fascinated with this. Uh, apparently right now it's FDA approved for uh, migraines and maybe cluster headaches or just migraines? You know, it's it, it's got, it's among the most widely cleared devices in the headache space. Or okay. it's FDA cleared for episodic cluster, acute treatment, prevention of cluster headache, mm-hmm. acute treatment of migraine, prevention of migraine, treatment of paroxysmal hemicrania, treatment of uh, hemicrania continuum, and adolescent migraine is the current... FDA clearance mm. in the United States of where we can use this. It's got a breakthrough designation for post-traumatic stress disorder, which means that the pathway through the FDA is a little bit more clear. 
we had an emergency use authorization while COVID was still a thing. Yeah, I want to get to that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, so, so those are things that have been validated to some degree by the government, and I'm not suggesting PTSD and and COVID are approvals. They they have been evaluated and got an EUA as well as a breakthrough designation. But there's a more work to be done uh, in those areas as well as a lot of other areas. Approved in the U.S. since 2017 for those types of approaches, or cleared is the terminology. Yeah. Um, and then we were actually selling in Europe since 2011 with a broader indication. That's what I wanted to ask you about. And if you can speak about this, because that's what also really interests me. I mean, I think it's great that it's available for the migraines, cluster headaches, and those other, um, you know, above the neck issues. But again, Kevin Tracy's work seems to indicate it could work for a lot more things. And as you probably are familiar with, the Vegas Nerve Society lists a lot of conditions where they think it could be used off-label. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm just curious again. I mean, maybe your experience. If you're allowed to talk about this, like, are people using it for you know autoimmune diseases, fibromyalgia, off-label, and um, are we seeing some results? Yeah. So I, I, you know, of course, I know that people are using this for everything that you referred to on the Vegas Nerve Society, the VNSociety.org. Is just lists basically peer-reviewed publications where people are uh, utilizing some type of vagus nerve stimulation, not necessarily the gamma core, but right. mm -hmm. epilepsy with the implanted devices and and um, research going on in Parkinson's disease. And just this week, there was a great paper came out on memory enhancement in patients with PTSD. Wow. Um, and we go down the list. There's, It's not that, that these devices solve these diseases. These devices and approaches activate the vagus nerve, which is touching these organ systems. And they, they need to be, you know, called out and validated. I, I'm not here saying people should go off and use these approaches, um, um, you know, off-label, but I do think uh, there are strong signals of efficacy in a variety of different areas and strong signals of safety. So that's the kind of thing that the doctors and the patients need to have a conversation about what's the best thing for the patient. So what was the emergency use with COVID? I was reading one of the papers that you, I think, wrote or you, or someone had sent to me. So it wasn't, um, you know, because COVID causes so many things, so many, um, I see what's called mast cell activation syndrome. So again, a lot of patients that I saw who came to me with long-haul COVID were uh, experiencing um you know, really devastating besides food allergies and a lot of other unusual symptoms, but especially the um, essentially like orthostatic hypotension, really severe things. But I think in the paper, it was you guys were using it more for respiratory issues to enhance their breathing because, yeah. you know. So, so the, the two things that, that I wrote about in the first paper was a hypothesis paper. It was, you know, as you know, COVID started to get our national awareness in February. I wrote a paper that was published in April in the journal Neuromodulation, which was the most downloaded article of that year wow. for that journal. Um, and it was just a hypothesis paper, mm. kind of burying some of the work that Kevin Tracy had done with bacterial infections, showing right. he could sepsis, block infection. Yeah and sepsis, uh, and the work that we had done showing that we could improve breathing and bronchodilation. That's a fancy medical term for opening up the lungs. And if you recall, there were people dying in masses in New York City oh, because yeah. A, they couldn't breathe, and B, they had a cytokine storm. Right. And I 
hypothesized, and it turns out to be probably true, that we could modulate both pathways with an afferent and an efferent pathway on the vagus nerve um, by non-invasively stimulating the, the, the vagus. And um, we showed in a subsequent paper that we could modulate C-reactive protein, a, a marker of inflammation. Um, and um, in a study that's still not published yet is uh, a sense of improved breathing as well could be could be shown with this. So I think we were correct on both the science of this um, in both cytokine and inflammation, but the emergency use authorization, uh, the FDA said there's really not enough with your device to say that I can help the cytokine storm, but there was enough for them to say, I think I can. you can help people's breathing. So they granted a specific EUA to help people breathing with known or suspected COVID. Again, remember, we didn't even have a COVID test back then. This was know. this was very early on. And um, you're, you're segueing into another important area, which is long COVID. And so I'm asking a separate set of questions. I, I you know, always start with the science of why, why? The first science question was cytokine storm and difficulty breathing. Could we help with that? With long COVID, we're seeing a different set of problems right now. We're seeing dysautonomia. Right. Multiple organ systems, including the lungs, the gastrointestinal tract, foggy brain, headaches is number one, actually. Um, all of those are tied to the vagus nerve. And more recently, there have been a series of papers that have come out that have said that they believe, as do I, that one big subset of the patients with long COVID have had a damage to the vagus nerve, sending us down a new track. There are two studies published with an auricular vagus nerve stimulator, and the Mayo Clinic Rochester is doing a study um, with GammaCore on long COVID in a randomized controlled fashion to really tease out what are the possible benefits in this really pandemic that's you know bearing down on us in terms of cost and and mm. uh, a difficulty to society. So I, I think this is something that we need to spend some more time researching. Absolutely. You know, one thing I have to tie in, and again, for my dedicated listeners, you know, <laughs> I think you'll find this fascinating. Uh, a few months ago, I did a podcast on uh, with two top neurology researchers on Parkinson's disease. Mm -hmm. And and again, this was from a Scientific American article I read. I was fascinated. I think they said they think about 50% of the cases of Parkinson's, uh, they believe it uh, has a uh, gastrointestinal origin. Yeah. And because uh, they they found some medicine from a fish, you know, like an enzyme in a fish that blocks the, the thing. But the, what they showed in the diagram, and this is from somebody also from Europe who did the real research, it was through the vagus, vagus nerve. It was inflammation up through the vagus nerve causing, because again, of course, with Parkinson's, we're focusing on the basal ganglia in the brain, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So this, I mean, what you're saying just ties in unbelievable. You know, so not only should it work, there was a paper published by Mondahl in Nature Parkinson's disease about a year and a half ago now, showing that in a double-blinded randomized controlled trial, they were able to improve Parkinson's gait significantly with vagus nerve stimulation wow. with, with this device. And look, 
again, I want to make sure your 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 listeners are understanding that this is not the same as an FDA approved. You know, I know, strategy. I know. But, but but like people like hope, study, you know, it's, you know, and it's it makes sense. And everything you just said fits in with my understanding of yes. inflammation in the brain being part of what's going on with Parkinson's disease. And we've just talked about the vagus nerve being something that modulates inflammation, both centrally, neuroinflammation, and in the periphery was what Dr. Tracy was studying. Yeah. I want to ask you one thing about sort of on dysautonomia. I, I have several patients from COVID with this. I also have a dear friend, which um, really saddens me. Um, this is a person who was in a major car accident many years ago, was in a coma and amazingly recovered. Uh, but subsequently later on, he developed type 1 diabetes and uh, over the years became quite severe. I actually had taken him to a doctor in New York where they did testing and they found, uh, I guess in his legs, you know, he really had no, I guess what it would be is no um, autonomic uh, sensory in his legs. I mean, he's able to walk and everything and he doesn't really have neuropathy, but on this testing when he was like, he's, he kept his feet on a thing and it showed nothing. And his major problem now, which is just really sad, is that he gets major orthostatic hypotension. He stands up and within a minute or two minutes, his blood pressure drops to 80 over 40, something crazy, he has to sit down. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, he's got a history of some cardiac issues, obviously probably related to his diabetes. Can this vagus nerve stimulation help patients with orthostatic hypotension, which again, also a lot of some of the COVID patients are. I, I just don't, I don't know the mechanism and I don't know if you have the, you know, get any feedback or experience on that. Well, it's an interesting question. And again, it's not FDA cleared for yes, that of course. Of approach. But um, your friend's uh, symptoms are not unique. It's relatively common that after a, um, a serious automobile injury, people can develop autonomic-like symptoms. And I think about why that is. A, there's an area of the brain um, where the vagus nerve enters it's into the brain. Cervical spine too, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. up, into, yeah up into the brainstem. Mm -hmm. And that can um, be damaged during a coup contra coup or some kind of uh, injury of the brain. And the second thing is the vagus nerve comes out through the neck and can potentially get damaged with the whiplash types of injuries. Um, you know, as a, as a treating pain physician, I've saw patients for years who had pain that was out of proportion to what you think would have happened from that other tissue damage that's occurred. And I think this is an area that needs to be deeply explored on autonomic dysfunction. And, 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 and years ago, about 10 years ago, I came up with the term vagus insufficiency syndrome. And this was intended to describe the relationship between various diseases. So for example, there are five sets of disorders that we think about as functional disorders, and, and that should not be pejorative. That's just kind of how the terminology is. Anxiety, depression, headache disorders, um, gastrointestinal problems, asthma, uh, and you, there's a series, you know, fibromyalgia would be another one. And it turns out that these disorders are co-linked. Depression doesn't cause anxiety, and depression doesn't cause gastrointestinal problems, but statistically, there is a latent causation that's causing both of these to pop up. And what I've hypothesized is that there is a larger percentage of people in this world who have an inadequate vagal tone, and I wasn't smart enough to think about heart rate variability 10 or 15 years ago. But I suspect if we were to really carefully analyze it, we'll be able to find 
that a population of these patients may have a damage to the vagus, which is why they're having these weird sets of symptoms across different organ systems. How quickly do you think someone should respond, for example, the gamma core? Could it take within a few sessions? I mean, should it work? Uh, does it take a couple of weeks? I mean, I know there's not always an exact thing, but just in general, you know, if someone's realizing, well, this is working. Yeah, there is really no in general answer there other than to say, you know, you know, our primary indication for this is, is migraine and cluster headache, right? Right. Um, it's remarkable how... Someone will come into the doctor's office with a migraine and it's just getting started. The doctor will treat them and it goes away like that. The flip side of that is if we're talking about prevention, what I believe happens with a lot of different types of headache disorders is there's a central sensitization, a central inflammation that occurs in the brain. That takes a little bit longer to wind back down. And so my general recommendation to people is if you're doing it for an acute problem, you should see a benefit right away. If you're doing this as a chronic disease, I would give it at least a month or two to really see. And, and you've got to use the therapy. <laughs> In one of our studies, I went back and did a retrospective study and said, okay, why did these people not do well? You know, what, what, you know we have a pretty good success rate, but this population of patients didn't do well. Mm. And it turns out they weren't using the device. So not using it. They weren't, they weren't using, using it. it. I have no way of knowing if you right. use it or not. If you don't, if you don't use it, it's like the doctor probably prescribing a you know pill for your cholesterol, and you just leave it in the bottle. Right. Uh, cholesterol is not going to get better. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's a similar, it's a similar idea. You got to use it, and um, two to three times a day. And 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 honestly, I don't know that we have the answer for all different diseases. We're, we're right now we're working on an acute treatment of stroke. And what we've shown is if you catch an evolving stroke within six hours and you stimulate the neck in a study that was uh, recently published, you stimulate the vagus nerve, um, you can decrease the evolution of that stroke by, you know, 24 hours later, the size of the stroke that it would have become is significantly less. Wow. Again, not ready for prime time for, for, uh, for uh, FDA approval, but there's a second study being done in the Netherlands right now looking to validate the first study that, that that showed this significant improvement, which validated what was shown in the animal models. So how do more physicians find out about this? I was talking to the person who's going through the training with me on the Gamma Core, and I asked her, I said, you know, like, what doctors are doing this? Is it mainly neurologists? And she says, well, Dr. Mitchell, you'd be surprised. Actually, our, our, our largest number of physicians now are functional medicine doctors. Yeah. So how does this get out there? You know, that, as you know, because, I mean, again, pharmaceutical companies have it down pat. They know how to, you know, uh, you know blanket the, the physicians, get all those drugs out. Um, how does something like this device get, to, get, get down to people's primary doctors or, you know, again, specialists they might be seeing for these conditions? Well, Dean, I was thinking that going on your podcast was going to make that I hope happen. so. <laughs> well, this could this could go viral, so I hope. Who knows? Um, yeah, look, I, I think um, there's a variety of things that are going on. Number one is it's a paradigm shift for a lot of people to think. I have a little handheld uh, device that is giving an electroceutical or a digital drug uh, effectively, and that's just not what... I know, the people, are, people are used to thinking about right correct so that's one aspect and the second thing is we have to come you know the the reimbursement strategies for 
uh, various insurance companies have to join the 21st century. Uh, they still sometimes don't cover these things. Uh, and in spite of a robust, robust data set, they they say, oh, investigational, experimental, because they don't want to pick I totally relate. You know, one of the things, it's funny you mentioned earlier on about your son having peanut allergy. That's one of my areas of specialty uh, is allergy. And I was kind of one of the pioneers in my field in doing sublingual immunotherapy. I haven't given an allergy shot in 25 years. Uh, and I treated for, again, over two and a half decades, you know, all patients with environmental allergies, allergic to animals, pollen. Uh, but the last five years, I've been doing the foods because uh, some work that came out of Duke and now North Carolina showed that the sublingual drops can desensitize patients that have these severe, dangerous, life-threatening food allergies so that they can tolerate them uh, without going into anaphylaxis. We don't encourage them to eat those foods, but it's just like it's a, it's a huge you know, peace of mind. Yeah. But anytime you're in a new space to educate the public, to educate doctors, it's a huge Huge mountain to climb. So I, yeah, uh, we're, we're 20 year overnight success. Um, we, right. <laughs> we've had a device on the market in Europe since 2011, and it is remarkable how little people know about this. Yeah. Well, this, this to me is fascinating. I am so excited the kind of work that you're doing. Is there any place that we can send our listeners? Uh, who may have family or friends that could benefit from this, that where they can find out more information? Yeah, so I would say, you know, wearing my Electricore hat, I, you know, there's a lot mm -hmm. of information on the electricore.com website. And the, the, the website that you referenced earlier, vnsociety.org, is really just a um, warehouse of information about what the vagus nerve does. And it is really not intended to be um related to any type of uh neurostimulation approach there are great you know great aspects on there called polyvagal theory which is um uh a uh a psychological approach right. to understanding threat and how it affects disease so this is an area that if you want to broaden your perspective on health and wellness that i think you can find some information on that's great. Yeah, the site the site is great. Yeah. Well, Dr. Peter Stats, I really appreciate you coming on. You again, this was an amazing amount of information. I hope the listeners appreciate it. If any of my listeners have uh, any questions, you can try to reach uh, at my uh, at our my practice's website, Care at Mitchell Medical Group. We'll try to answer as many as we can. Uh, again, so thank you again for coming on and sharing all your expertise. It's really a pleasure. Thank you for the honor of being with you. Yeah.